This is episode 191 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Teacher Supply, Qualifications, Impact, and Pay. This episode is part of our series about education and teaching. Hey, everybody. It seems like this is probably a good time to talk to you a little bit about what's happening behind the scenes here at Dear Discreet Guide. So it's been almost two years since we started the podcast, and we're almost at episode 200. So with 10 or 15 episodes left, whatever we have in the rest of this year, is the point at which we're going to change things a bit. And we'll still do books and movies and talk about people's life's work. But we will step away from it being quite an advice show about work and sort of both broaden the topics and also narrow them at the same time. And I'd love to tell you what the new name of the show is, but we haven't decided. And this is where I could use your help. I'd love to have your suggestions for what the name of the show should be. So it'll be pretty similar to what we've been doing over the past two years, minus the kind of uh, work advice or career advice uh, that we folded in, particularly in that first year. So we'll still be talking about learning and work, uh, but not quite so much advice. So if you have uh, some suggestions for me, I'd love to hear them. And you know, the other thing is, I get asked most often by my guests, what's your audience like? And I have to tell them, I don't really know. I know who a few of you are, but I can tell that there's a big listening audience out there that I have no clue who you are. So if you have time and would like to help me out, drop me a line. Let me know who you are, what you're interested in, your suggestion for the new name of the show, and really anything else you'd like for us to know. There are all kinds of different ways you can reach me. I'm all over LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and also through the website, A Discreet Guide. So yeah, please reach out and let us know. And of course, any support you can give to the show is also so appreciated, whether it's a review or if you can follow the show or just give us a nice rating. All of those things will really help us in the new year, grow the audience, and also uh, provide a show that, that you really like and that you really enjoy. So not a whole lot of specifics today. I wish I had more for you, but just be aware we're planning on changing the name once we turn over into 2021, Uh, but a lot of things will stay the same and would really like to keep you as a listener and know more about you. Thanks a lot. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this.
I'm delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today. Dan Goldhaber is with us, and I'll just introduce him. He's worked for about two decades doing quantitative research on teacher-related issues, and today we're going to be talking about the supply of teachers in the kindergarten through 12th grade area. He has uh, been the director of the Center for Analysis of Longitudinal Data in Education Research, known as Calder to its friends, and also Cedar, uh, which is the director of the Center for Education Data and Research. And the first one, Calder, is at the American Institutes for Research in Washington, D.C., and then Cedar is at the University of Washington. So he's uh, back and forth between two Washingtons. <laughs> he, got his, he got his B.A. in economics from the University of Vermont and his master's and Ph.D. in labor economics from Cornell University. So welcome to the show, Dan. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. It's funny that you have your PhD and master's from Cornell University, no connection, but the I think it was the first or second episode that we did in this series about education and teaching was with Doug McKee, who's a senior lecturer in economics at Cornell University. So yeah, funny, Cornell just keeps popping up. The Cornell connection. The Cornell connection, CC, you got it. Let's talk first about the supply of teachers. And we sometimes hear that there's a scarcity of teachers in that K through 12 area. And what have you found? Well, I think I would say a couple things by way of background. Um, Mm -hmm. One is that we tend to be a little bit loose with the way we talk about uh, teacher issues when we're thinking about supply and demand and shortage. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, I think of supply as how many folks are um, graduating from teacher education programs or teacher preparation providers who are getting the credentials that are necessary to teach. And that might be different than um, the demand for those um, individuals. Um, so that's that's one thing by way of background. And then the other thing I would say is that I think it's quite important that we not talk about teachers in a generic sense because the supply and demand conditions and the challenges that school systems face in staffing classrooms are quite different if we're talking about, for instance, elementary education teachers versus, you know, secondary science or special education teachers. You know, the the, the challenge to find people with the requisite skills are different across the different areas. And I think we miss some important nuance when we, we lump all teachers together and uh, as if they are the same. Yeah, makes sense. And so what are you seeing? What, I, what we know is all kind of pre-pandemic. And uh, I, I think pre-pandemic, there was pretty clear indication that coming out of the Great Recession, it was increasingly challenging for school systems to find enough high quality individuals to staff classrooms in general. And there I go again, talking about teachers in a generic sense, but that, you know, I'll I'll keep reminding both myself and the audience about how that's, that's probably not the right thing to do because the challenge really did differ across different areas. Okay. So, you know, while there were, increasing challenges kind of across the board. The challenges were especially stark in special education, 
um, STEM fields, teachers for um, English language learners. And then it's always been more challenging in schools that are characterized as being, you know, tough to staff schools, you know, and those are typically schools serving um, more needy students, um, you know, oftentimes students who are not on grade level in poor areas, you know, schools are not always the same. Oh, yeah. The, um, The workplace environment is not the same. And that makes some teaching jobs more desirable than other teaching jobs on average. And hence, um, you know, some schools and school districts are going to having a, a tougher time finding, you know, staff than others will. So is it fair to say, again, broad brush and, and trying not to be uh, too general here, that in the lower grades for typical on-grade everyday schools, that those we can find teachers for, but as you rise in the grade level and also in the specialized skills that are needed for particular student groups, that it gets harder? Is that a reasonable generalization? Yes, I I think that that is a a reasonable generalization. Um, I would put a kind of to give a national perspective, you know, in a, a typical year, um, teacher education programs, teacher preparation providers typically graduate and, and we credential twice as many individuals as um, will be hired as completely novice teachers into the school system. Yikes. Now, many of those individuals are, are not necessarily, you know, they may not necessarily be pursuing careers in, in teaching. Hmm. You know, they they may graduate with a uh, an education degree, for instance, but decide that they want to do something else. And, and that's true in any walk of life. You know, there are a lot of philosophy majors out there who are not necessarily, um, you know, pursuing uh, a, a very philosophically focused um, career. But um, the other thing that I think is is important to recognize is that just like it's not it's probably not the right thing to talk about teachers generically in terms of the, the, the kind of subject that they are teaching and the, and the specialization that they may have with, the, with regards to the kind of students that they're working with. I think most researchers would reject the idea of, of talking generically about individuals as if they are interchangeable. Mm. Because one of the things that we've learned over the last two decades is just how important individual teachers are for impacting student outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so we can talk about, you know, the aggregate numbers and, you know, how many people are being prepared to teach um, versus how many people would be hired. And, and, I, and that's important, but it's also important to understand that who those perspective and teachers are as individuals can really, really matter because the impact that individuals have on students differs from one individual to another. Yeah, which which certainly makes sense. And we'll spend some time talking about teacher quality and teacher impact. So to go back for a minute, it almost feels as though there's sort of a double whammy, like we have too many teachers that are being graduated with kind of generic skills at the same time that we have a scarcity 
for and need for teachers who have more specialized skills and who could teach at the high school and also in urban environments. It is that I mean, so do we also have do we also suffer kind of from unemployment from newly graduated teachers? Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite clear from some research that actually I've done with with colleagues that if you follow people who get different uh, credentials, so again, you know, quintessentially, it's the you know the the STEM you know STEM special education versus elementary education, okay. that the probability of observing somebody who gets a STEM credential in the labor market in the in the next year versus the probability of observing somebody who gets an elementary education credential, that those probabilities are, are quite different. Yeah. You get a STEM credential, you're much more likely to be in the, in the labor market quickly, um, and, and your overall probability of finding a job in, in K-12 public schools is much, much higher. So what, what often happens is that if you are getting a credential in an area where teacher preparation providers are, are you know, credentialing a, a relatively large, relative to the needs, relatively large number of individuals, they oftentimes will um, serve as substitute teachers for a year or two mm-hmm. uh, and, and kind of um, work their way into school systems in that way. We can get into some of the whys these issues exist. And I think if we have time, that would be great to do. But this is not a new problem. You know, we, we've actually known about this for two to three decades, mm. this issue of differential likelihood of, of getting a job um, and differ- differential challenge that school systems face according to teacher specialization. And I don't see that we have really dealt with that issue in a, a systemic way as um, in terms of policy. Right. I'm just imagining you know, the people sort of say in general, oh yeah, there's a teacher shortage and some young person goes through and and gets credentialed and then discovers that they can't get work. It must feel very, very deflating, very demotivating. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, I think the, the, the central issue is that we, we don't have the kind of, um, what labor economists would think of as labor market signals mm. that are readily apparent in maybe other walks of life in teacher education. So typically you get paid the same amount uh, if you're a, a, a science teacher or you're an elementary education teacher. Mm. But, the, but the requirements to, to um, become a science teacher are different from the requirements to be an elementary education teacher and your likely out of teaching labor market opportunities are quite different. Mm. That's both in terms of the the kind of job, the likelihood of getting a job, and importantly, um, the kind of pay that you could expect to get. And it's because people typically are paid more in in our society and other other economies as well if they have um, technical skills. So there might be more opportunities for people who have been trained in science at a high level to go and do something else besides teach? Yeah, so that, yes, for sure. Um, and so this, this works on, on sort of two ends of the, of the teacher labor market. For that reason, it's, it's probably harder for teacher preparation programs 
to um, to draw in people mm. who have a, a propensity to um, focus on you know science and math, and then also at various times again over the last you know two three decades, we've seen that there are are times when you know the economy is really roaring, um, especially if it's the tech sector, um, and we might see a higher attrition of people with those kind of skills because they are presented with other labor, better labor market opportunities. Yeah, uh, it all—it's all sounding worse than I thought. <laughs> so you've answered the question about how many people were graduating. Do we also see that there's a lot of dropout? Um, early in people's career, does that also create holes? Yeah. So um, teacher attrition early, early on in a, in a career is um, certainly a lot higher than it is mid career. So, you know, a, a lot of teacher attrition happens in the first, you know, three to five, actually one to five years um, mm. in, in the classroom that I, I think that, I think it's reasonable to say that the attrition rate is higher than we would hope, but it's also important to recognize that not all attrition is bad. Yeah. Right. In every walk of life, Mm -hmm. you know, you are probably trying out a a, a career, um, but you may not know exactly what it entails or whether you have the kind of the skills and orientation toward that career um, when you begin and you learn something. Um, when you you know get you get into your career, and that's the same for for teachers. And um, as a result, there are certainly lots of um, people that are leaving teaching earlier in their career who might ultimately not make for effective teachers, and we might want, not want to keep in the labor market. So that's that's important to consider. But it's also true, I think, that if we um, did more to you know front load compensation and um, support, uh, you know, relatively novice teachers, that we could probably reduce attrition rates and hopefully keep in the folks that are, are very effective. And they could grow in their career as a teacher. And that would be a good thing. Because one of the things that we, we certainly know from research is that there's um, a fair amount of improvement in your effectiveness as a teacher, you know, in your first, you know, five to seven years of gaining experience. Uh huh. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. So I'm starting to hop around here in all my questions. So forgive me for that. But do you think then that some people are dropping out because, well, I, I'll just throw in my own two cents here. I mean, teaching is hard, or at least my experience with teaching, especially classroom teaching has been, it's hard work. Do you think sometimes people are dropping out because the work turns out to be pretty hard and the pay is low? Sure. There are certainly a lot of people, I think, that are dropping out because the, the, the work may be hard or different than what they they had expected. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, that some percentage of what we see as, as teacher attrition early on are individuals who are getting counseled out by school administrators who are perhaps saying this, this is maybe not the, the, the best career for you. Um, and so they're encouraging them to think about other options. And there are some things about the way that the teacher labor market works that I think make it especially hard for novice teachers. One is, as you pointed out, um, beginning teacher pay is not that great. And the second is that beginning teachers 
um, are disproportionately likely to be assigned to teach in, you know, tougher schools and tougher classrooms. Mm. And that is part of the political dynamic that exists in um, the, the school system that I think is unfortunate because there's probably teachers that get burned out early who might not get burned out if they had, you know, again, more support and, and maybe they were not assigned to um, be in, in the toughest classrooms early on and so that they could develop their skills and, and be, you know, more ready to, to handle challenging situations um, a couple of years in rather than right out of the gate. Well, it's interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking about my experience as a parent of watching my kids go through school and paying a lot of attention to the teachers, it's just only now dawned on me that, you know, we, we put people through educational programs with a lot of care, right? We pay a lot of attention to the progression of their education, at what point they get credentialed, you know, what, what program they end up graduating from. But suddenly then, boom, at the end of that, you're kind of out on your own. And at that point, I can imagine things could get pretty rough, like finding a job, finding a school district, finding a principal that you'd like. Has there ever been any effort to continue like sort of some outreach from the education schools to shepherd people into classrooms that will, you know, that will help them grow, but not be too hard? I'm sort of talking pie in the sky here, but but it occurred to me that there's a big letting go of the student potentially at the end of their graduation from education school. Yes. Um, so as, as you're, as you are, are talking, there are a number of different things that are running around in my head. Yeah. Sorry. Me too. Um, So I want to say, um, first, I think I would, um, take a little bit of issue with, with part of the premise of the question, um, in that, um, I think that there is sometimes a lot of care put into the preparation of teachers but not always. So that's a a topic probably for a different day, Mm. but I think there are a number of ways where, a number of ways in which we could imagine greatly strengthening um, the level of preparation that people have before they actually are, you know, charged with with managing a classroom of their own. So that's that's an aside, but I I think- Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's um, good. Mm -hmm. To your question, there are certainly school systems and teacher education programs that do work either independently or collaboratively to support new teachers. They're, they're typically indu- called induction or mentoring programs um, that uh, that novice teachers have. It's 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 by no means universal that a, a new teacher in the labor market will get in you know good induction or mentoring, but that's something that lots of school systems um, endeavor to provide. And I think there's lots of evidence that um, the that mentoring can can make a big difference. Um, well, that part of what you questioned is is happening to some degree. Mm -hmm. What I think is not happening very much is to address this issue that I raised earlier about the way that the, that the teacher labor market works structurally um, so that novice teachers are given a position 
you know, that, that they can grow into the job. It is pretty typical for novice teachers, again, to be assigned to more challenging schools and classrooms. Mm -hmm. And it comes back to the way, I think, comes back to the way teachers are paid. So um, we talked a little bit about how teachers are typically all paid the, the same uh, if they, regardless of the skills that they that they bring to the table, and and regardless of the way that the broader labor market might reward those skills, and that is also true um, regardless of the the school that you're assigned to. So there are cases where if you're in a, a tougher school, um, you earn a little bit more money, but that is atypical. That's that's not the norm, um, and so what happens is that. What we see is that as teachers gain more experience, they are likely to transfer to schools that are serving more advantaged economically, at least students and students that tend to do um, better academically. Mm-hmm. So that is maybe the reverse of what you would hope for the, the way that the labor market functions is you know, the teachers right out of the gate they're likely to get the toughest assignments, and that means that the students that are kind of most in need yeah. of having a you know a highly capable teacher are the ones that are likely to be assigned to the the most novice teachers. Yeah, right, exactly. All right, I spend part of the year up in Mammoth Lakes, which is this uh, tiny ski resort town in the Eastern Sierra, and I was very astonished one day to open my P.O. box up there. We all have P.O. boxes because of the snow. And there was a little postcard in there from the local school district. And it said, hey, are you interested in teaching in our local schools? We're looking for you. And the postcard said uh, you could go to an information meeting, but the bottom line was that they were interested in finding teachers who weren't necessarily credentialed to teach. And I was so astonished to receive this postcard and just all the implications that there were behind that. Have you heard of that kind of thing? And do you have an opinion about that? (laughs) Well, I want to be um, careful about speaking to the specific, to say I'm not speaking to the specific example that you laid out because I think that the issue you raise about alternative, you know, alternative routes into the profession, alternative credentials is a very contentious one. Mm. And it is another example of where we talk about things in a generic way. And that masks the fact that there's actually a great deal of different approaches across different states and localities. And, and really, this is something, this is an issue. How, to what extent do we allow people who don't go through kind of the traditional process of um, becoming a teacher? So the lion's share of people, um, they go to a teacher education program. They then typically have to pass various licensure tests, um, and then they're eligible to teach. But in lots of states... There are alternatives to that traditional path. Uh, so Teach for America is a, is a well-known um, alternative program that tries to recruit people. And in some states, they're allowed to get into the profession without having gone through a full teacher education program, university-based teacher education program. Yeah. A state like Texas has a, a large number, a large share of the workforce coming through alternative routes. Oh, interesting. 
Yeah, but what those routes look like varies considerably from one state to another. So states determine what is required to enter the teaching profession. And um, at the state level, what states require both of traditional teacher education programs and alternative routes into the profession can be quite different. And so you asked, do I have an opinion? Mm-hmm. And I would say that I try and have my opinions be, be sort of evidenced, you know, sure. empirical evidence-based. And, yeah. and what I've seen is that in comparisons of teachers with traditional versus alternative routes, that they really vary estimates of how effective teachers are, whether they have traditional or alternative certifications, um, vary by state. And that's Mm. not surprising given what I've just said about the states determining what is actually required. So that's one of the things that makes it a a sort of a controversial, the issue of alternative routes makes it a controversial issue. Mm -hmm. I want to say two other things, and that is that it's probably easy to infer, for instance, that if you if you see people who come into the profession through alternative routes that look pretty effective, you might jump to the conclusion that, oh, traditional teacher education doesn't matter. Right. You know, that, that might be, that's, I can see how someone could, could jump to that conclusion. Yeah. Um, but, but that would be a premature conclusion because there are two things that are happening when somebody enters the profession through an alternative versus traditional route. One is that you could draw different kinds of people into the profession. Mm-hmm. So Teach, Teach for America is a good example of this. Um, historically, Teach for America used to recruit at all of the, one would think of as sort of the top tier you know, colleges and universities in the country. That's less so today. They're, it's a more diverse um, program today. But historically, that was the, the way the program would work. And so you might be getting people entering the profession who have more maybe subject matter background, as a, for instance. And they're not getting the traditional teacher education that would typically give you more pedagogical training or, or training on how to interact and, and teach um, kids. So you're getting a mix of selection of different kinds of people and different kinds of training. Mm-hmm. And so it's very hard to parse out what is the effect of one versus the other of those differences. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about you know, the need for traditional training, we are only thinking about one of those two differences. We're not thinking about the selection issue. And so that also makes it challenging to to think about and and talk about and make policy around alternative certification. Yes, that's all great. And thank you, Dan, for holding our feet to the fire about being precise about these things, because it's a complicated topic, and when we talk about it without that refinement, I think we can lose a lot. So now I have also a whole bunch of things running through my head because it occurs to me that if you have a school that's made up mostly of qualified teachers, I'm going to use that that term, right? That qualified, mm-hmm. that means they've been certified. It doesn't necessarily mean they it qualified it typically is about their credential. Yeah. Their credentials um, as opposed to um, their impact on students. And so 
researchers sort of think about research both in terms of the qualifications of the people mm-hmm. and the impact that the people have on students, and then what are the connections between the qualifications and the impact? So how, how well do the qualifications predict their impact? Yeah, that's what I was trying to lead up to with my questions was I can imagine that the context also matters. So if you have a school full of certified teachers and you bring in, you know, some retired science professor or a recent Yale grad through Teach for America, you know, the context is able to absorb someone like that and and really make use of them. But if you had a whole school full of retired science professors or a whole school full of uh, recent Yale graduates, things might look very different. So uh, again, uh, thank you for for, uh, making us be precise about these things, but I'm realizing that there's an additional complexity and that is the context in which they come in. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, but I think that's right just because it seems sensible. As, uh, okay. As, um, <laughs> I, you know, frankly, I don't think that we have seen the kind of experiments that would allow you to tease out, you know, what are the contexts in which people with certain kinds of backgrounds uh, can can move successfully into a teaching career. Um, which is not to say that we don't know that context matters because there's some relatively new research and I'm going to um, give a shout out to a couple of the, the folks that have done, done this work. Um, I'm thinking of uh, a Matt Kraft and a John Pape, where they show that the, the, the kind of gains that teachers get with more experience, so how much more effective they become, does appear to be context specific. And there's a a fair amount of evidence that also shows that leadership matters. So who is the principal and what kind of an environment is established in a school can also affect um, how successful individuals are. Okay. So go back to the first one about context mattering. Like what are, what's an example? Well, again, it's, it's, it's hard to be um, super specific because, you know, context is, Right, it's a it's a it's a subtle um, it's a subtle thing, right? It's the environment in which you're working, and it's you know how much trust is there, you know, amongst colleagues, and how supportive are people, and how much do they collaborate? Okay. And a lot of the quantitative work that I and others do um, uses data sets that don't have quantification of those very important contextual variables. Sure. So we can see that there are perhaps benefits to being a teacher in a particular school, but um, it's, it's more um, speculation as to why those benefits exist. And there's qualitative research um, that suggests that all those things that I've described really, really matter. Um, for instance, a shout out to Tony Bright, who um, studied uh, schools in Chicago and talks about the, the need for trust in the way that schools function and the relationship that teachers have with their colleagues and teachers have with their um, school leaders. And if you think about teaching, that makes a lot of sense because as a teacher, just like in any other walk of life, 
you're going to screw up sometimes. Sure. And so you want to probably be in an environment where you can learn from those screw ups and, and reflect and hopefully get better. And um, that is not the environment that exists everywhere. Right. Well, again, I, I'm uh, thinking about how, now <laughs> how complicated this topic is. And I was thinking earlier about teaching and teachers. And I think for me, it would be very hard to sort of quantify the quality of teaching that I've received throughout my life because there's so many factors that come into play. And so my hat is off to people who try and study and quantify quality teaching. Because I was thinking, you know, sometimes I really like a teacher, even though I think they're not really that great of a teacher. And then sometimes I don't like a teacher. And then later I think, yeah, but you really learned a lot <laughs> from that person. So, so how do you researchers go about evaluating teacher quality? Well, I mean, his, like go, going way back in history, a lot of the way that people looked at teacher quality was based on their qualifications. Sure. Um, over the last two decades, um, there's there's been a kind of a revolution in the in the way um, empirical research is done around schools and teacher quality, and and it's connected to the fact that that students are tested annually. It's allowed um, researchers to look at the impact of individual teachers in contributing to the gains, and that is a very important part of my statement: the gains in student test scores from year to year. So that we can see, for instance, that, you know, if you're assigned to Jennifer, you might year over year have pretty large gains in, in, in tests. And, Yay, and, go me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, whereas if you're assigned to Dan, you know, maybe uh -oh. <laughs> you're pretty flat. <laughs> uh -huh. and, and so that, that we can see that, the, that based on this test score metric, that it really does matter which teacher you're, you are assigned to. So for some folks, they may say, okay, but, you know, tests don't matter that much. And I would say, mm, I think tests actually are pretty predictive of how well kids do later in life, but they're not the, you know, they're not the, the be all end all. Okay. But there's been some very important work by um, Raj Chetty and colleagues showing that this test-based metric of um, teacher impact, which is often referred to as value added, okay. is also connected to all of these later life outcomes for students. So the, the Chetty et al. research connected the value added of teachers to things like the likelihood that kids go on to college and graduate and enter the labor market and earn a lot and end up in a, um, a job where they have a 401k. You know, things that I think would be, it'd be pretty hard to argue that those are unimportant factors. We care about, you know, those economic outcomes for individuals and hope that in addition to the myriad other things that schools are doing, you know, in terms of like teaching, you know, to be good citizens and, and to be kind, um, that they're also preparing students to be successful in, in the labor market. And so this Chetty work showed that value added is connected to those kind of outcomes. But more recently, um, there's work that shows that teachers not only contribute to the, the test-based value added of students, 
but also other kinds of non-test outcomes. So the likelihood that students um, are engaged in schooling and are, you know, attend and are likely to progress from grade to grade and are likely to get involved in, you know, to, to get into trouble and um, um, have, you know, disciplinary infractions that you can, we're starting to see that individual teachers have big and differential impacts on all those kinds of student outcomes too. Wow. I'm, I'm getting chills listening to you talk because that certainly is supported by the anecdotes that we often hear. I'm thinking of Derek Black. I interviewed him. His new book, Schoolhouse Burning, just came out and he talks in there about teachers sort of rerouting him from the from the track that he was on. And at this point in his life, you know, he sort of throws up his hands and says, I, I don't know why they took an interest in me, but it had a huge impact. And then I'm thinking of Hillbilly Elegy. I've um, forgotten the, the author's name, but he also talked in there about how just a couple of teachers having a huge impact on his life. So it's quite moving, really, to think of the impact that teachers could have. There's, there's, there's all this research that I think is 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 basically buttressing the the common sense notion and common sense notion because we we've, we've likely all experienced um, that teachers are quite different from from one another um, and can have a, a profound impact on the trajectory of your your academic and later life outcomes. What's what gets to be controversial is that um, you can't see that impact. It's only felt or observed retrospectively. Mm-hmm. And that's it's you know, it's it's challenging to make schooling policies then based on um, on impact for a variety of reasons. So the way, for instance, teachers are credentialed and then um, paid is, based on qualifications rather than their impact. And, um, you know, in some cases um, that it it probably makes some sense. Again, we know that teachers get to be more impactful in a positive way, typically as they gain experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are some credentials that don't seem to matter nearly as much. What gets to be contentious is that we can we can observe and know that teachers can have big and differential impacts on students, but typically the way that the school systems work, both in terms of teachers getting credentialed and teachers getting paid, is it's based on their qualifications. And those things, you know, the, the qualifications are not always connected to impacts. Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's a big takeaway, I think, from this episode. And so, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about quality of teaching and pay. You've talked a little bit about that, but uh, yeah, can you give us a takeaway about that? Is there a connection between pay and quality of teaching, or are they pretty separate at this point in our current system? Well, there's a there's a, a well-established connection between um, teacher quality, and, and when I say teacher quality in this context, I'm talking about um, their impact on, on student outcomes. Okay. Teacher quality and teacher experience, especially early on in a teacher's career. Okay. And, and more experienced teachers, as we see in, in most walks of life, also get paid more. 
So in that sense, there's a connection between teacher pay and teacher quality. There's less of a connection between teachers having master's degrees and um, or, or PhDs, but mostly master's degrees um, and teacher effectiveness. There are some caveats to that statement. There's some evidence that having a, a master's degree that is kind of more tailored to the subject that you are teaching, especially if you're teaching, you know, a higher level math and science course, that in that case, having a master's degree does seem to predict how effective a, a teacher is. But most teachers don't have master's degrees that are really specific to the area that they're teaching. Mm -hmm. I, I, I suspect that the plurality of um, master's degrees are in educational administration, right. which is the credential that is needed to um, become an administrator. So it kind of makes sense when you think about the incentives that individual teachers have that they would might seek that degree because they, they might think, hey, I get the, you know, the roughly $5,000 pay bump if I get a master's degree. And if I get a master's degree in this area, it also gives me the credential I need if I wanted to become an assistant principal or a principal or move into the central office. Yep. Um, and so uh, this is an area that is also controversial, but I think there's some low hanging fruit to maybe um, make the system better. And that is that school systems could do a better job of rewarding the master's degrees that really seem to be aligned with being a more effective teacher rather than just giving a, a teachers the, the pay bump regardless of what, what in what area they get their master's degree. Oh, I see. Interesting. So there's a pay bump affiliated with a master's degree regardless of what that degree is in? Typically, yes. I see. Oh, interesting. All right. So to open up another can of worms here. So let's take the idea that you've proposed that the gain that students are seeing is in fact related to the quality of the teaching that they're experiencing. And so what kind of variation do you see if you've looked at this either within states or across states? Do you see any interesting findings that we can take some generalizations from? Um, I think the evidence suggests, again, that disadvantaged students tend to have both be assigned to both less credentialed teachers and less impactful teachers, where, again, impact is this value-added based measure. And that is pretty consistent across states, that finding. When you look at the state level you know, where the research has been done in a couple of different states, you, you tend to see the same sort of patterns. Huh. It's not as if um, that, that, that general finding masks the fact that there are actually some very effective teachers in disadvantaged schools. So it's, it's, it's not so stark that if you're in a high poverty school, all the, the, the teachers are ineffective. Um, in fact, it's quite the opposite. There are, lots of, there are lots of effective and lots of ineffective teachers in high poverty schools and in low poverty schools. Okay. So um, there's a lot of what economists would have referred to as heterogeneity or, or variation once you get um, down to the school district and, and school levels. All of this 
raises a question that you haven't asked, but is is often related to um, this line of discussion, which is about um, pay for performance for teachers. And, oh. and, you know, if we can see that there are these different effects of, of teachers, you know, why don't we pay teachers who tend to have po- big positive effects more than teachers who don't have big positive effects? And pay for performance is a hugely controversial issue. Teachers typically don't like the idea. Um, and I think that's important. Um, it's not the only consideration, but whether the workforce um, is amenable to it is, is certainly a consideration. Mm-hmm. And there have been a, num- a number of experiments that try particular ways of doing pay for performance. And it doesn't suggest that there are huge, huge benefits, for instance, when you give teachers at the end of the year a big bonus because their students made big test score gains. That kind of design doesn't seem to work that well. But I also think that um, there's evidence that school systems, and I'm thinking of, of Washington, D.C., and uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm in the weeds and, and, and a little nerdy here, but a, a shout mm-hmm. out to um, um, Tom D. and Jim Wyckoff for some of the work they've done on the, on the Washington, D.C. system, that a school system like Washington, D.C. that has a whole package of integrated systems, and, and in the case of Washington, reforms, that include evaluation of teacher impact on students, you know, more maybe subtle or nuanced evaluation of teachers based on their supervisors or colleagues. Feedback to teachers about how how they are performing. Um, professional development to try to help them out. And pay, you know, pay difference, differences, but pay differences that are not based on sort of the one-off student achievement test gains, but um, permanent changes uh, about where teachers fall on salary schedules based on you know several years of being a high performer. That that kind of a holistic system can be quite efficacious. That it really looks like it's changing um, the talent in in Washington D.C. schools. Yeah, I've spent many, many years as a manager, and just to throw in my two cents here, I think it, my gut reaction to having big bonuses paid out on a one-off test result doesn't feel right to me. In fact, it feels as though that could be even quite harmful as people try and manipulate the system in order to get that money. I just know when you put in incentives, you have to be Careful. Really, really careful about yeah. yeah what you're doing, and I can even imagine teachers starting to resent the poor students who don't test well. Well, I, but that's but but so so I just want to interject here because I don't I don't want um I don't want the listeners to think that simply being assigned to a poor student means that you're not going to do well because that is the the import of this value added metric is it's really trying to dis- to assess what is the contribution that teachers are making to student achievement, no matter whether you are assigned to the honors class or the remedial class, um, that it's really about detecting how are teachers contributing? 
And, you know, this, we could, we could <laughs> talk for days about uh-huh. uh, the specifics of that. Um, and it would be quite boring, <laughs> um, but, but, um, but I don't think anyone, I don't think any credible researcher or frankly policymaker that I would take seriously would ever suggest that you ought to just look at student test scores and reward teachers based on, you know, just the average test scores in the class, for instance, because that would obviously advantage the honors, you know, teacher honors class teacher. And that's not what you, what you would want to do. I want to say one other thing about this, um, this issue of, of bonuses. Um, One of the reasons why I, I, I I speculate that the sort of the one-off might not be the best system over the long term is because an advantage of becoming a teacher is that you've got a relatively stable job. You know, you can kind of predict at least within a, 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 a close approximation, how much would I likely be earning in five years? If a huge percentage of your salary were connected to um, performance of students and, and your impact on, on that performance, that adds a lot of uncertainty. And so that might work in a, a really high paying profession because you know you're, you get people who are willing to take those kind of risks. But teaching is not a place where you're gonna you know become a millionaire and then you know over the course of a decade. And so you know that in some ways that kind of a system would undermine sort of the economic stability associated with becoming a teacher. So I think that it's I think it's risky for some of the, the reasons that you have cited, which is not to say that you couldn't have some kinds of pay per- performance that consider consider risk and and you know kind of think about performance in a, in a more nuanced way. I mean, I'm an economist, and and so as an economist, I I tend to be in favor of incentives, and I think incentives matter, um, mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons why it's hard to get the. This is going back to the beginning of our conversation. Why it's hard to get the math and science people into teaching, because they have an incentive to go to higher paid you know, avenues of uh, higher paid careers. Um, so I think incentives matter, but I think that we need to, to think carefully about those incentives in, in the context of a teacher's career. Yeah, that all makes sense to me. So before I let you go, since I'm running out of time, is there anything you'd like the public to know that you think there's kind of a myth out there that you want people to be aware of? Um, just some misinformation that you think is not well understood? Well, I, I mean, I think it's what we've, I think it's what we've covered. So I'm, I'm going to just, I'm going to just emphasize um, two things. One is pre pandemic. If you picked up a newspaper um, on a given day, you may well see uh, a story about a na- the national teacher shortage. Mm-hmm. And that is not nuanced enough. And it's not nuanced enough because one, the teacher labor market is not national. States determine um, what is required to um, get into and stay in the teacher labor market. So the states could differ significantly from one another. Two, the, the, the challenge to staff classrooms is not the same across the board in terms of the skill set of teachers. So again, it's it's typically harder to staff special education, STEM, and ELL classrooms than it is elementary education 
and it's not even close. You know, it's, 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 it's quite different, the challenge that, that school systems face. And then three, not all schools face the same challenge. It is much, much harder to staff schools that are, um, are, are seen as um, probably more challenging environments. And we ought to, I think, think about connecting the incentives, the pay incentives to all of those things. Because if we don't, if we don't differentiate pay a little bit, um, we're kind of throwing a managerial um, tool out the window mm-hmm. that we, we ought to use and that is typically used in, in other sectors of society. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I wouldn't want my comments to be interpreted as that we shouldn't have incentives. I think if they're well done, they can be very effective. Yeah. Okay. So before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like to share with the listeners where they could follow your work or learn more about this topic or really just any resources you think we should be aware of? Um, sure. I'll, I mean, I'll, I will uh, send listeners who want to really dig deep into the into the research to a couple of, of different websites. One is www.calder.org. And the second is um, www.cedr.us. And those are the, the two um, uh, websites that, you know, put out research that I, I help to, to direct um, and also would encourage listeners that if they have questions, they should feel free to reach out to me. And I would say, actually, I'm going to speak <laughs> a little bit for the research community. I think, I think people are surprised sometimes that, um, you know, researchers will, you know, talk to individual policymakers or just individuals who are interested in an issue. But for a lot of researchers, you know, you're, you're doing this line of work because you want your research to matter to people. And, you know, the, probably the best way to make it matter is help people to understand the research and um, talk about how it might be relevant to the kinds of issues or decisions that they are facing. So I would just urge um, folks to, to reach out to people. Yeah, well, along those lines, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and also for the work that you do. We, I, I really appreciate it. Oh, well, well, thank you for having me. And it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday, and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.